Welcome to the Federal Security Spotlight, brought to you by Cisco on Federal News Radio 1500 AM. Every week, Federal News Radio interviews federal IT specialists about the latest directives, security challenges, and IT successes. Welcome to the Federal Security Spotlight on Federal News Radio 1500 AM. I'm Tom Temin. In this edition, we'll talk about cloud computing, what it is, why agencies should think about it, and whether it's secure. I spoke with a cloud user. He's Philip Resnick, an associate professor in the Department of Linguistics and the Institute of Advanced Computer Studies at the University of Maryland. I asked him how and why he uses cloud computing. Well, I think there's really two angles on cloud computing. Um, one is thinking of it as a utility, uh, an opportunity to put the computing uh, not within your own organization, but someplace else, and to use it flexibly. Um, and that's something that has you know attraction for all kinds of organizations. Uh, as an academic, I have a different perspective on it. Um, cloud computing is actually um, an opportunity to solve problems in different ways. So, for example, if you can get your hands on large quantities of computing power flexibly when you need it, which is something that's somewhat difficult for academics, mm -hmm. um, you can take large problems and break them up into small pieces and solve them. And uh, that's something that uh, provides opportunities that we really haven't had before in an academic setting. Well, tell us, uh, let's back up a minute and talk about some of the problems you're trying to solve uh, and how, you know, what it is you're applying this computer power to. Sure. I uh, specialize in uh, a field that's uh, sometimes known as computational linguistics. Uh, sometimes you also see the term natural language processing. Mm -hmm. Natural language is what we're using now. Uh, that's just human language as it occurs naturally, as opposed to programming languages or artificial languages. Uh, and uh, the field of natural language processing goes all the way back to the origins of computing just after World War II, when people were interested, for example, in the ability to monitor the Russian research literature, and you had American scientists who didn't read Russian, and so you wanted to be able to automatically translate in order to find out what was going on. Um, and so the field has actually been around for many, many decades. And the kinds of problems that we focus on uh, involve basically trying to get computers to be smarter about human language. That can range from doing better search. So to some extent, the kinds of things that you find in search engines uh, fall within the umbrella of sometimes what's called human language technology, of which natural language processing is a part. Uh, another good example is machine translation, automatic translation from one language to another. Uh, there are quite a few other applications. You see them all over the place. And in fact, speech technology is very closely related uh, to language technology overall. And so over the last uh, you know, decade or so, you've started to see real applications of language technology starting to emerge, not just within the research community, but in the, uh, in the marketplace as well. Well, these sound like the kind of problems that the federal government is uh, needing to solve, too. Oh, absolutely. Uh, as, uh, as, a, as a researcher in this area, um, uh, for quite a while, uh, I, I'd say... Probably a, a large percentage, if not the majority, of the research uh, that we do is government-sponsored. Um, I actually, my first job out of college was at BBN, Bolt, Brannock & Newman, which is uh, people know as a, as a government contractor in, uh, in the language technology area and some other areas. And um, so absolutely, uh, the, uh, one of the large sources of funding is, the, uh, is uh, uh, DARPA, Defense Advanced Research Project Agency. Um, you have funding from the intelligence community. You have funding from uh, individual parts of the military. Uh, there's a whole lot of work on this sort of stuff going on. Uh, and the, the overall theme there is, uh, if I had to you know, try to put one 
uh, label on it is that there's a ton of information out there that's occurring naturally in human language, and you want to be able to get a handle on it and do useful things with it. So what kind of computing power do you need to process these types of files and language bits and and, uh, and stuff you examine. Right. Well, that's actually changed a lot over the years. Um, it, it used to be the case that you could do work in natural language processing uh, on a very small scale by writing rules, uh, uh, encoding knowledge. This is how sentences are put together. These are what words mean. Uh, here's how you connect the knowledge to a database. So when I was at BBN, for example, we were working on natural language interfaces to databases. You wanted to be able to ask a question and have it automatically generate the queries. Uh, but what happened in the late 80s and early 90s was an enormous shift in the field. Um, there was a, uh, a revisiting of early approaches that, that uh, actually were the dominant, became the dominant force in speech recognition that were not based on trying to write things by hand, but automatically learning from large quantities of data. And that upended speech recognition in the 70s, and it completely turned natural language processing around in the 1990s as people from the speech community and the machine learning community all got together and started tackling this stuff. So all of a sudden, the availability of large quantities of data, uh, actually, as an aside, as somebody who worked in natural language processing, in the, in the early 90s, uh, a lot of people were saying speech was going to be the big thing. Right. And then the web came along, and text acquired new life. All of a sudden, doing things with naturally occurring text began to matter a lot more than, they, than, than it had before. And so that, uh, that research thrust all of a sudden shifted... Uh, and so there's work in speech, there's work in text, now there's stuff related to social networking. And the volumes of data that became available all of a sudden made it imperative to have more computing power than you used to have before. So we can get useful work done on a small cluster, say a 15 or 20 node cluster of uh, typically, say in my lab, of Linux machines. Um, but if you really want to be making strides in the computing uh, then you actually go up by an order of magnitude sometimes more. So tell us how cloud computing plays into the research you're doing. Well, so that's really an interesting question, and it's, uh, the answers are only just emerging. Uh, cloud computing in academia is really very new. Uh, Google and IBM together launched something called the Academic Cloud Computing Initiative a couple of years ago, and their goal was to help ap academics get started with this, um, not just in order to help academia, but to train the next generation of, uh, of uh, researchers and developers on the kind of computing that they wanted to see done. And so what they did was they provided access to their internal computing clusters uh, uh, or, or some subset of these things. Obviously, it'd be nice to have access to all of Google's work, uh, the, all of their, 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 their computational resources. That's not happening. Um, but they had set aside, you know, clusters of, you know, 100 nodes or, 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 or perhaps several hundred uh, and gave us the opportunity to work on those things. So it's almost like the old time-sharing idea in the mainframe days. I think the big difference between um, that concept, well, I just need a thin machine on my desktop and I can log into a mainframe. And what we're talking about with cloud computing uh, gets at the other aspect of cloud computing. It's not just about it being a utility. It's also about it being a way of breaking problems into pieces and solving them without 
having to deal with all of the nuts and bolts of managing everything. So if you break a problem into a thousand pieces and uh, three machines die while you're in the process of doing the computation, what happens? And up to this point, people like me in academia have had that as just a problem we need to solve. I need a smart grad student to design an architecture where if something dies, it'll be able to keep going. Or more often, you do stuff by hand. You go in, you look at the log files, you figure out where the problem was, and you restart those three machines and get that part of the computation done. Now, in a setting like uh, the, the Google IBM Cloud Computing Initiative, you have uh, Google's MapReduce framework, which is a paradigm for doing large-scale parallel computation, and an open-source um, uh, framework called Hadoop, which was developed by Yahoo. That, on top of uh, you know a file system that supports this sort of thing, makes almost all of that completely transparent. And so the nature of computing has an opportunity to change so that as an academic, it's not just a question of having cycles that I can get my hands on that I wasn't able to before, which is wonderful. Uh, because in our setting, it's not just a question of uh, deciding to expend capital on more machines. We have to write a research proposal and convince somebody to give us the capital to buy the new machines. Well, thanks very much for joining me. We've been talking to Philip Resnick. He's the Associate Professor in the Department of Linguistics and Institute of Advanced Computer Studies at the University of Maryland. When we return, we'll talk to Mike Nelson about some of the computer security aspects of computing on the cloud. This is Tom Temin, and this is the Federal Security Spotlight on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM.